This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there, this is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers and joining me on this very special episode is my co-host, Mr. Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? What do I say? (laughs) uh, I thought our 100th episode was special. Um, This one... uh, is going to catapult us into the stratosphere, I think, you know? <laughs> well, I suspect so. I think once people find out who it is, they, they will be all over it like a rash. What I would say is, though, with with about seven minutes before uh, the former Prime Minister contacts us to, to do this interview, I would say my hat's off to you for probably knowing him better than pretty much anybody else on the planet except possibly for his wife and kids because <laughs> the, the research you've done for this has been uh, without par. Uh, I don't know about that, mate. I, uh, I can tell you I didn't sleep well last night and I felt like I was – the last time I felt like this was, it was before an exam. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, um, you, you've said to me a few times, mate, are you actually going to do any study into this or are you just going to roll in like you normally do? And <laughs> I took that to mean you'd better do some. And look, as you know, in, in my former career, I've interviewed a lot of people, um, sports people, actors, musicians, uh, you know, some, some pretty big names on the international stage. And it, it, it sort of becomes a bit old, not old hat as in boring, but you just sort of get used to it. But I got to say, I, I also had a restless night last night, just thinking. I probably was thinking, I've got to get this right for Leon. <laughs> I knew that. Yeah, no, that's exactly what you would be thinking. Because you're more worried about me than you are about the guest. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, you know, I guess for me, it's. I mean, this guy is one of one of my heroes in the sense that I, I just feel like he's, you know, there's very little that. That he, I mean, in fact, I can't think of anything on on a policy perspective, from a policy perspective, mm. that I actually disagree with him on. Right, you know, same-sex yep. marriage, climate, the whole. I agree with him on all those things. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, and to have someone like that who was um, independently wealthy going into parliament, mm. becoming prime minister, uh, you know, not beholden to media or anyone else. Yeah, it's just, I mean. You know, it was the best shot we had at, at, at catapulting the country forward. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know, just, listen, yeah, just reading the book, uh, the, the book was a bit of a depressing read for me in, in, a, in, in some respects because I felt why in this country did we throw away the opportunity to really get things done? Mm. What was interesting to me in in, um, doing some of the research, uh, obviously there was a a podcast that you recommended I listened to with with he and Christopher Pine. And what I thought was really interesting, uh, because I remember the time and I remember when, you know, there was the whole Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison, you know, we knew that there was going to be a spill and we knew most likely there'd be a new prime minister. Um, But both both, uh, our guest and, and Christopher Pine both said uh, without a shadow of a doubt that either man would have won the, the election that we now know was winning the unwinnable election. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting. And I guess, um, yeah. it's Look, the thing also that, that I really like is the fact that there's, there's some 
really, really NT-focused stuff that we want to talk on. Uh, it's not just a big name for the sake of getting a big name on, but there's, there's some things that he was directly involved with that, uh, you know, that, that the NT were, were affected by. Yeah, yeah, mate. So with about four minutes to go, um, I'm still thinking that they're going to ring up and cancel, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Let's hope not anyway. Uh, otherwise, um, otherwise we might out them for other reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. But, uh, no, look, it's, it's um, honestly, just going through this whole process in preparation for this interview has made me become a lot more politically aware mm. of some of the major issues that we have in our country. And, and I think for me, I mean, despite the fact that climate change is probably the number one issue, yeah. and we can see it every day you yeah. know, now, yeah. um, th- th- an issue that may be of equal importance, if not just below it, yeah. is the influence of um, the Murdoch press Yes. In this country. Yeah. You know, um, and I was just talking to one of my Labor mates, um, a bit like Turnbull actually in that respect, yeah. talking to one of my Labor mates just now, a former secretary of the Labor Party here in the Territory, and he, he completely agreed, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how, we've got to ask um, Malcolm actually how, how many, um, like what, what percentage of the media that the, the News Corp actually controls here in Australia. Yeah, but I, yeah. I think it's something like eighty percent. Yeah, it's it's huge. It, it is huge. I remember back from my radio days. Um, it was always interesting to watch the machinations when the the few players were looking to buy new assets, particularly in the major capital cities, because generally it would come with a divestment of sorts. So you know, if they own television and newspaper, but they wanted to buy radio, then they'd have to flick one or another. Um, so yeah, his, his, uh, his percentage of control is, is huge, uh, but we we can ask directly. Yeah. And I think it should be something that should be an ongoing theme in our podcast now that, um, you know, we have that uh, relationship with the NT independent, which I think is a, is a good one, despite the criticism that, uh, uh, I seem to be getting from various parts of both sides of politics, I have to add. Um, right. Interesting. About our yeah. relationship, uh, you know, with, uh, with Chris Walsh. But, I mean, at the end of the day, if he's, if he's you know, if his uh, journalism is, is correct, I mean, if he's following all the protocols and doing what's required and asking those questions, yeah. I, I call him out is what I say if you yeah. think he's done something wrong. Exactly. Well, mate, with uh, just under a minute to go, I suppose we should stop this. And uh, when we come back, we'll, we'll actually do another intro for you if you're listening to this. And uh, you'll, you'll hear who our special guest is. Leon's let the cat out of the bag a moment ago if you picked up on it. But uh, we'll, we'll let you know who our special guest is up next on the Territory Story podcast. Hello there, welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers and joining me for this very special episode is my co-host, Mr. Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? I'm very well, Pete, and ready and rearing to go. Excellent. Well, would you like to do the honours? I would, indeed. Um, For our podcast this uh, evening, we have a former Prime Minister, Mr. Malcolm Turnbull. 
Malcolm, welcome to the Territory Story podcast. Yeah, thanks, Leon. Uh, thanks, Peter. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Look, I suppose we should get the formalities out of the way uh, to start with. Um, how should we refer to you? I know as a, a former Republican or a pro-Republican, m- maybe we should uh, s- start with Mr. President or Your Excellency or what would you prefer <laughs> today, Malcolm? Uh, Malcolm's good. You get, you're off to a good start. <laughs> Excellent. Mm. Malcolm, um, your old sparring partner, uh, Mr. Donald Trump, or President Donald Trump, uh, famously rated himself a 10 out of 10 for his presidency. Uh, I guess with time to reflect on, on your time as PM, how would you rate your, your time out of 10? Oh, I, I wouldn't give, I would uh, allow other people to do that. I've written quite a long <laughs> book about it, so about my uh, career and my life, so I'll, I'll leave others to do that rating. Fair enough, fair enough. But okay, on the subject of ratings, if you're not prepared to rate yourself, uh, Malcolm, perhaps uh, you might assist us. I mean, the ter- Territorians are particularly parochial. Uh, and we've sent a number of territories. Uh, unlike everybody else. Like <laughs> <laughs> yes. We've sent a number to Canberra over the years. And uh, I just wanted to pick a few and uh, just get your uh, your sense. I know some of them uh, have rated a mention in your book. And I, uh, um, Nigel Scullion being one. But uh, could we start with perhaps with Dave Tolman? Because he was, he was there back in the day when... Um, yeah you were looking to do that or there was a spill uh, at that stage and yeah look leon i i um you know i i uh worked with dave and always got on well with him i worked with natasha i got always got on well with her but i worked most closely with nigel scully right mm. so um and had a, you know we we did a lot together and uh, i rated him rate him rated him and still rate him you know very highly Right. Did you did you have much to do with any of the other politicians? Did you? Not a lot, really. I mean, I knew that. You know, I knew them and and did events with them and you know discussed matters with them. But Nigel was in my cabinet, and uh, as the minister, you know, for Indigenous Affairs, we we had a we you know we spent a lot of time together on uh, all the Indigenous issues. We travelled together uh, to remote communities. Um, you know, we were um, the uh, well, we were in Darwin together at the time of the you know final settlement of the Kenby land claim with the Larrakia people. Um, you know, we went uh, to the APY lands. You know, we 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 did a we covered a lot of miles together. Uh, and he was um, no, he was a very good colleague. As mm. I, as I as I record in my book, I mean, I give him credit for the. I think probably the indigenous procurement policy was one of the best initiatives we had in the whole Indigenous policy area. Uh, Malcolm, the NT seems to be becoming a, a more and more important strategic hub from an Australian and, and US defence perspective. Uh, obviously, the US Marines uh, have a, an outfit based there on an ongoing rotation. And it's one of the few things that Obama authorised and that Trump hasn't actually wound back. Do you think Darwin will become more important as tensions continue to rise with countries such as China and North Korea? Well, I, I think Darwin will become more important full stop. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I think it's a mistake to see Darwin purely, and I know you don't, and Territorians don't see it purely in terms of its strategic position, <coughs> you know, as the Australian capital, you know, closest to uh, Indonesia and so forth. But it is a, uh, you know, it, it, look, honestly, it's a very exciting 
city, very exciting territory. You've got, you know, just immense opportunities there in every respect and people, talent, natural resources, proximity to Asian markets, you know, multiculturalism, uh, you know, really strong Indigenous presence. I mean, look, I I, I think the, you know, I'm I'm a big fan. So, you know, I, I don't think you should, I mean, yeah, sure, the Marines are important and the defence perspective is important, but it's only a, a, you know, a fraction of what the territory is all about. Mm. I mean, it is something that is uh, is weighing on the minds of territorians. I have to say, I mean, this whole um, the issue of the port. I mean, I was going to the question I was going to ask you was: uh, uh, do you, do you think the port in Darwin would have been sold to the Chinese if it was up for sale today? No, I, I'm sure it wouldn't. Actually, um, absolutely sure it wouldn't. And, and why do you say that? Well, I just think the, look, I mean, the, the, the back background to it was, as you know, the territory government was seeking to privatise it. They had a very long process that went on for quite a while. Um, and, you know, there were parliamentary inquiries and reviews and so forth. And then they entered into an agreement with Landbridge, the Chinese company, um, and this had been this had gone through the FERB and had been all approved about the but by the time I became prime minister I sort of inherited that and when it was raised with me um, you know I inquired naturally of the defense department and you know the security agencies and they all said they'd looked at it and given it a tick and you know it wasn't a there wasn't a national security issue um, but I think uh, we at the time, you know, there w- there wasn't really a proper appreciation of what was critical infrastructure at the time. And uh, I, again, I talk about this in my book, A Bigger Picture, so I won't go into it at great length. But you know, one of the things we had a, an issue with um, a an electricity grid uh, company, uh, Osgrid, in um, uh, New South Wales, where. We had to stop a sale. That's to say, Morrison and I had to stop a sale to a, the, by the New South Wales government to uh, a Chinese company, and on national security grounds. And it became obvious that we just didn't have a good understanding of what was critical infrastructure. No one had a register of it, and so we set up a critical infrastructure unit, a register. And so there is now, you know, there's now legislation supporting that. And that's better for everybody because what it means is that um, if a government, state government, you know, wants to privatise something, if it's on that list, they can get a quick answer whether as to which parties will be eligible to be investors. You know, because the 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 problem, uh, uh, you know, with a, a lot of these assets is that you don't want to be mucking people around. You don't want to be you know, letting, for example, Chinese companies, state-owned companies for that matter, think that they're eligible to purchase it and then at the last minute tell them they're not. You know, so you're better off setting the ground rules in advance. It's just much more business-like and that's what, that's what happens nowadays thanks to the changes that we made a few years back. Hmm. Sort of switching to a bit of a different uh, issue and, and this, this uh, you have to bear with me if you... If you could, please. Uh, it's a long question. There's some context to it. You were Prime Minister when the Four Corners Program and Youth Detention in the Northern Territory was aired in 
July 2016. At the time, I thought there'd be a Royal Commission into it, and virtually the very next day it was announced. Uh, like the live cattle trade ban, this seemed to be another case of a knee-jerk reaction from Canberra inflected on the territory. In the wash-up, it became apparent that the Four Corners program was a hatchet job, and a lot of the footage was old, and those officers had been tried and found not guilty. Furthermore, there had already been an inquiry into this previously with similar recommendations. The upshot of the $70 million Royal Commission, which I understand the Territory had to pay half, is that juvenile crime in Darwin and Alice Springs has soared as police have been divested of powers to detain and diversion has been cynically coined catch and release programs. Uh, but for COVID-19, it's accepted wisdom that Labor would have lost the Territory election last month on the issue of crime alone. Are you aware of the crime issue in the Territory, including Tennant Creek, which you visited as PM, where the only supermarket was burnt down last month? And what do you say to Territorians who felt that the images in the Four Corners program were appalling, yet now have to live with an explosion of youth crime in the suburbs as a result of the Chief Minister Michael Gunner implementing the recommendations of the Royal Commission? Well, Leon, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with much of that. Um, I, I'd say this, the, the, the problem, the reason why we had a federal Royal Commission coupled with a territory inquiry, so that the commissioners were, you know, authorised under both territory and federal Commonwealth law, um, was because it was quite clear the system had failed in the territory. I mean, you know, you can't get around the fact that there had been abuses in the um, you know, uh, uh, you know the um, you know uh, criminal justice system. So far as it applied to children, uh, the um, there had been abuses. That it had been that the system, the government had been aware of it. There had been reviews before, but the problem was nothing had happened. You know, there was a failure. Now, you know, I I I think most people would accept that uh, there is a real uh, issue with child welfare in the territory, but just locking, you know, locking more and more kids up is clearly, um, you know, I mean that's clearly not the answer. Uh, now I understand. I'm not, you know, I don't live in the territory, and I certainly, I honestly, the last thing you need is, you know, wise men from the from the south telling <laughs> telling you what to do, right? So I and I completely get that. But um, it was pretty clear that there had been a, a failure there. I think the inquiry was, uh, I think the inquiry was, the commission was, was worthwhile. It was quite, the terms of reference were quite constrained. But they, and you're right, it does cost a lot of money, these, all these inquiries do. It's a lawyer's, Leon, that's the problem. <laughs> uh, the, uh, those, I'm always those, telling him that. Those expensive lawyers. But, but look, I, I, I think it's a, you've got to, you know, you've got a very, it's a very big, very big issue. I, I saw some of the consequences of this in um, Tennant Creek when I visited there uh, in 2018, but, you know, you're living in the Territory and, and mm -hmm. the people who live there have a much better understanding of this uh, than me. I spoke to Michael Gunner about it actually uh, when I was finishing the book uh, just to check in and see how things were going, he maintained that the 
you know, and just telling you what he said, I mean, he said to me <laughs> at the time that the recommendations uh, were, you know, were being in large part implemented. He felt that uh, they were making progress. <coughs> but, you know, obviously that is, um, you know, that's a contentious issue. But, look, I, I, I'm not suggesting that these problems are, A, easy to solve or, B, uh you know, soluble. I mean, some of the markets, you've got real issues with the breakdown of, of families, um, particularly uh, in Indigenous communities and, you know, but not exclusively. And that's, that is, um, you know, that's at, that is at the core of it. But again, uh, it's, um, um, there's no justification ever, any justification for treating anybody, let alone children, inhumanely. Uh, there's no question about that, and I don't think there's a single Territorian that would disagree with that. Um, what it appears to me to, to be happening is the implementation of these recommendations uh, are generational. And so it's going to take many, many years mm, to actually sure. work through and make a difference. Well, I, I think the, that may well be so, but, I mean, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Uh, you can't, um, you know, the problem is there isn't, there, with a lot of social problems, there isn't a quick fix, you know. Mm. So a quick, a quick solution, you know. Sometimes you've got social problems that have taken generations to uh, create and they will take a while, you know, they'll take a, a while to address. Um, I mean, it, again, I, I write about this in the book in the, you know, the section where I write about... Um, Tennant Creek. I mean, it was like it was a very interesting thing. When I went to Tennant Creek, um, you know, a huge problem with uh, you know youth, you know, crime, delinquency, homelessness, you know, however you want to describe it, and a lot of agencies, you know, a lot of agencies, NGOs, territory agencies, some federal agencies, um, but no one was. They weren't actually being coordinated. And it was kind of interesting. There was a young police woman, police officer, who um, actually uh, developed had developed her own spreadsheet, uh, and so she was actually uh, coordinating with the different agencies so that they could actually, uh, you know, communicate and cross-reference with each other about their interactions with particular individuals and particular families and coordinate their work. And I remember, you know, we were there with the chief minister and it was, it was interesting that, you know, this hadn't, this, you would think, perfectly logical and obvious approach hadn't emerged from some genius in the, you know, state in the Territory Public Service in Darwin, but it emerged from a young police officer, you know, who I hope has been promoted <laughs> and, and rewarded for that, for her initiative. But it may obviously made a big difference because otherwise, you know, the people are you're missing things and, you know, some people are getting, if you like, over-serviced and other people are falling through the cracks and not being followed up at all. But, uh, yeah, but it is a, it's, it, I'm not, it's, none of it is remotely, I'm not, not even, suggesting it's easy or that, you know, someone like myself from another part of the country would uh, have particularly keen insights into it. 
Well, let's, uh, that's a good segue to the next question. Uh, and that, this is probably a little, little bit more global than the, than the previous one. The Indigenous population represents over 30% of the population of the Territory. A lot of the money from Canberra that is meant to address Indigenous disadvantage doesn't appear to be spent there or is siphoned off in administrative expenses, as, as you alluded to before. Um, but even if the money did get to deal with housing, health and education in Indigenous communities, are those communities going to become self-sufficient and contributors to the economy? Or are we, in the words of Amanda Vanstone in 2005, simply propping up cultural museums? Oh, I think that, well, I, I, I'm, you know, a great uh, admirer of and uh, friend of Amanda, but I don't, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think that, you know, I think, uh, you know, Aboriginal Australians who want to keep, you know, who want to live on their own country should be able to do so. I mean, and the, you know, we don't tell other Australians where they should live. Um, you know, there are plenty of country towns uh, in my state, New South Wales, you know, where, you know, the economic opportunities are not as great as they are in the city, but we don't sort of tell people they should, you know, move move to Sydney or Newcastle or something like that. I, I, I think the, the... But you're right. I mean, there, there obviously are uh, big issues in terms of finding... Uh, economic opportunities in remote areas, but um, you know, we surely, with all of our technology and a bit of imagination, we should be able to we should be able to do so. But I, you know, I'd be very reluctant to start countenancing the idea that we should be telling people where to live. I mean, surely we've done enough of that to Indigenous Australians in the preceding century or so. Um, maybe it's about time we should be. Uh, listening to them and working with them, doing things with First Australians rather than doing things to them. Okay. Um, let's switch to a, a different um, issue, but still territory-focused. Uh, and, and this goes to the issue of, of, of you know, government and, and management of budget. Mm. Uh, noting that the Territory has gone from $1.7 in debt to $8.2 in debt in four years, projected to, to be around $10 billion when the budget is handed down in November. Mm -hmm. We are borrowing money to pay recurrent expenditure, such as public service wages. Yep. What would you do if you were Chief Minister of the NT, and how would you make the estimated 7,000 job cuts to the public service required to bring the budget back into the black when political pundits point to the 22,000 public servants, the majority of whom live in the northern suburbs of Darwin, as largely responsible for returning Labor to office last month. Well, well, Leon. Again, you know, I, I mean, uh, this is the, the the management of the Northern Territory budgets ultimately a question for the Northern Territory government. And, um, uh, you know, I, I look, I, I, I wouldn't be presumptuous just to actually say, you know, what should be cut cut, you know, or where, I mean, if, if anything should be cut at all. Look, the reality is there are some parts of the, the, the nation and both, you know, jurisdictions and inside jurisdictions uh, which require, you know, which 
require greater, you know, social expenditures, whether that is in terms of social welfare strictly, uh, you know, described or in terms of infrastructure. You know, you've got a, if you've got a large area with um, a limited population and hence a limited tax base, uh, you're obviously going to struggle out of your own resources paying for roads and water and electricity and all of those things. <coughs> but, you know, the, I mean, public administration has got to be efficient. Um, and uh, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I'd really leave that to the, to the politicians in Darwin and, you know, and, and territorians like yourselves to, to comment on. Um, I mean, ideally, ideally, uh, you would not run what's called a structural deficit in government. And a structural deficit means one where your budget is in deficit in good times or bad. You know, the idea, the goal should be, and this is certainly our goal when I was PM and we, you know, came very close to realising it had it not been for the pandemic, our goal was to basically get the budget into a place where it would be in balance across the cycle. So, in other words, in a downturn, you could spend and go into deficit and in good times you would be in surplus and, you know, um, uh, yeah, be in surplus, so, you know, and pay off some debt, et cetera, and certainly not incur any more debt. Having said that, uh, right at the moment, um, interest rates are very low, probably as low as they've ever been. Mm -hmm. uh, and if ever there was a time for governments to borrow and invest, it's now. Uh, but running a persistent, you know, structural recurrent deficit is is very problematic because what that means is that, you know, you'll be in deficit. If, you, if you're going to be in deficit in good times and bad, then you've got a real problem. You know, you've, you've really got to, you've got to aim to be in, in um, in balance across the cycle, I think it's the only responsible way to, to do it. Malcolm, there's been a lot of talk uh, amongst Territorians recently of the fact that the, ultimately the debt is the responsibility of the federal government. Can, can you see a situation where the feds would ever step in to either help the Territory government to get out of this debt cycle or would they simply just take over and say, well, ultimately it's our responsibility anyway uh, you're clearly not doing the job that you should be doing, so we're going to do it for you. Uh, well, I don't, I mean, I don't think that, uh, I, I, I couldn't imagine a circumstance in which the Commonwealth Government would, you know, effectively abolish the Northern Territory Government and, you know, administer the Northern Territory from Canberra. I, I don't think, I think that's a, that would be, that's a, you know, a fa that's a, a nightmare or maybe, some people don't think it's a nightmare, but I think I don't think that'd happen. Um, look, I think the uh, you know the territory gets you know it gets a much bigger share of GST than it generates. It, you know there is a, a lot of money going from Canberra, or you know going from not from Canberra, it's going from the rest of the nation to the territory. But you can make that point about different parts within a state as well. You know so. So, you know, I mean, part of the, um, you know, in any society, uh, you recognise that, you know, some people, some 
uh, regions have got more are able to you know are able to generate more income and hence pay more tax than others and so you know there is a there is a uh, income redistribution in a in a in any society and particularly in a society like Australia's which has a very has a you know a generous social welfare safety net um, but you know there's a as with all of these things there's a limit to how much of that you can afford or how much of that people will tolerate and the you know the the goal should be um, with the territory I would have thought of territory government its goal would be recognizing that it's unlikely probably ever to be completely financially self-sufficient to at least aim to a much greater degree of self-sufficiency uh you know than perhaps it has at the moment look last couple of questions malcolm and, and these for me, i'm sorry if i'm disappointing you in in not telling you how to run the northern territory but no, i can tell you one of the one of the um, uh, uh, great things about being Prime Minister or indeed being a minister in an Australian government is that you get around this very big country and you go to all sorts of places that most people don't get to. And, you know, I've been to many places which no Prime Minister went to before and or no Prime Minister went to since, you know, Bob Menzies or something like that. <laughs> and... Uh, and you, one of the things you realise is that, you know, people have got a better, you know, people on the ground, people, local people, and this applies whether it's, a, you know, a suburb in Melbourne or, you know, a, a town in the Northern Territory, local, local people have got a much better idea of what their issues are and how to deal with them than some, you know, bureaucrat, let alone politician sitting in Canberra or... or you know, in Darwin or Sydney or Melbourne or whatever. So, so it's important to be approach all of these things with a degree of humility, um, and that's why you know the goal should be to work with local people and support them and help them, uh, rather than you know be telling them what to do. You know, from a great distance. You know, let alone you know that sort of uh, management style which. Well, they call it the seagull management style, you know, flying in shit over, over <laughs> run and fly off, you know. Well, you, don't want to, you don't want to do that either. Yeah, yeah. True. No, but we do have some, uh, as you say, we do have some structural issues here. And uh, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any uh, political will or, or by any <coughs> party to try and address these issues. And yeah, but, know, but, but, Leon, you can't. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, it's up. You know, you guys are much better placed to judge the performance of the Labor government there. But you know, if you look at the last coalition government, you know, Adam Giles. Of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I hope you wouldn't mention yeah. that now. Yeah. Yes. I mean, their um, failures were largely self-inflicted. Of course, true. And you know, and I mean, quite frankly, um, you know, you we've seen a fair bit of that at the federal level too. Yeah, you of know, course. we're just. I mean, look at mm. them. Look at New South Wales. Look at Gladys Berejiklian. You know, surely, surely the most, uh, well, there is no premier, no leader in Australia who would be, who is more capable, more admired, more hardworking than her. You know, she is an outstanding. And she's had to put up with this imbecile John Barilaro, <laughs> you know, trying to blow up her government in the middle of a pandemic. So, mm. you know, a lot of, 
a lot of um, the, the, you know, I mean, some people get into politics and think they can behave in a way that, you know, would disgrace the toddlers at a preschool <laughs> centre, let alone people that are supposed to be managing public money and trust. And, and, and your book, uh, can I just say, spoke volumes about that. And, and, and you know what? For me, it was a, it was a depressing read. Not because your life was depressing. Your life was uh, is a magnificent life, Malcolm. But just exactly what you talked about—the crap that you had to deal with while prime minister—was mm-hmm. uh, is something that uh, you know. This is where I feel that democracies are failing us. And why people are ending up with people like Trump? Well, I think we've got to we've got to um, ask ourselves why do we tolerate and continue to elect people who behave so appallingly and crazily? I mean, leaving Trump aside, you know, but the you know there are it, it's it is a and I, and I think the media encourages it. I mean, the you know there are characters uh, uh, that I mean has you know you look at well, Bar- Barilaro is a recent case, but I mean uh, he is he is a darling of some of the right wing media in uh, mm. Sydney. You know, the darling of the Daily Telegraph and Alan Jones. Why? You know, this is like literally it is it is crazy. You've got people behaving in a way in government, in parliaments and in politics, that if they did that in the senior management of any large enterprise would be fired, you know, <laughs> in five minutes. <laughs> and and simply because it's just it's just irresponsible conduct. So yeah. so you know a little bit of more grown up behaviour would often would help. Well, I mean, you talked about that in your book at length, and I was, I was actually surprised. I wasn't expecting to read about this, but it, it did grab my attention. Uh, you, you talked about the influence of the Murdoch press on Australian politics, noting, noting that it is a foreign-owned company and musing about how little concern we have over this compared to Chinese influence. Mm. Uh, isn't it in our national interest to have editorial content to be kept independent of owners yeah well well of course it should be i mean the 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 murdoch media you know organization nowadays is not you can't really describe it in any meaningful sense as a news organization i mean it's actually is called news corporation but but it is essentially a political propaganda machine that happens to employ a lot of journalists uh you know the um, and and you know they wage, you know they wage campaigns as they did against me. You know and, and they do against uh, their political enemies. They cover up for and uh, you know do not hold accountable their friends. I mean it, it's look it's it's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. And you know the um, this partisanship uh, in the in the you know, media, you've gone from having newspapers that, and media outlets that lent, you know, they say you lent one way or another, which sort of basically meant, you know, the editorials would lean in one direction rather than another, to now where it's uh, increasingly uh, more like propaganda. And uh, I, I think the problem is that undermines the 
uh, people's trust and confidence in all the media. And, and you know, and you get, you get the, you get, become surreal. So you see Trump, you know, who will say anything. I mean, absolutely anything. He has no filter, no constraint describing the media that doesn't agree with him as fake news. Yes, <laughs> right? exactly. So it is, it's, it's, it's yeah. very wild stuff. It's a, it's as though um, our public discourse, if you can call it that, has become quite unhinged. Mm. And, and on that subject, um, what's your view of the legislation proposed to force Google and Facebook to pay media companies like News Corp for content? Well, I mean, I haven't seen the final proposal, but look, I think it's, it's very challenging. Um, I... Uh, you know, I struggle to see. I struggle to see how you can force a company to pay somebody for content which the owner of that content has voluntarily put on that platform. You know, I mean, it's uh, the um, you know people are breaching copyright. Absolutely, you know, there are issues about that. But if somebody chooses to put uh, content, you know, put, chooses to put content on a social media platform, uh, how, do you how do you justify forcing that social media platform to pay them for that content that they didn't ask to be put there? It's a, it raises a, look, it's a, it, it raises a lot of very complex issues. Um, I'd simply say this, that I, I think the, you know, the fundamental problem that the news media have got is not, um, you know, Google or Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter per se. The fundamental problem is that the internet has presented a more efficient advertising medium. You know, that's, that, mm. that's the reality. And, you know, whether those you know, particular platforms existed or not, that problem would still exist. I mean, if you go back to the 90s, you know, uh, when we got, when the internet was just starting to become commercial and we and uh, we founded Aussie Mail, I remember um, giving talks, you know, in my capacity as chairman of Aussie Mail and talking about how the internet was going to affect classified advertising because I'd had a history in previous years of, of restructuring some media companies, including Fairfax. Um, and so I knew a bit about the economics of the media industry at that time. And, you know, people would roll their eyes when I was talking about this and saying, oh, well, he's just, you know, talking his own book. <laughs> but the interesting thing was when you look back on it, it was absolutely inevitable mm. that this was going to happen. I mean, the idea of wading through pages and pages and pages of newsprint to find a car or a house or <laughs> lost budgerigar or something is extraordinary, right? And and you said to, you know, any young person, they'd look at you as though you're talking about the Stone Age. Mm. So so the you know the, the the fundamental problem is I think that media supported by advertising is really struggling. Um, and the whereas content that people have been uh, habitually prepared to pay for 
uh, they're still paying for. So the book business, for example, is still doing, is still, you know, I mean, it's had its ups and downs, but it is still prospering because people have always been prepared to pay for books. But with newspapers, while newspapers weren't free, they were very, you know, the cover price was very low and, you know, certainly didn't cover their costs. And so that, that whole advertising model uh, has been smashed by the internet, um, not by anybody doing the wrong thing. It's just like a better mm. mousetrap arrived. And, of course, people were not used to paying for content, for, for news. And, you know, when you think back on it, so many of the newspapers put all their content up online for free. Yeah. Which was a, which, you know, I think with the benefit of hindsight, they probably all regret. Um, so, you know, my, I mean, my, um, it is a, yeah, it's a, it's a, look, it's, it's a, it is a very, very, very vexed um, problem. I mean, on the other hand, the cost of news, of making news, I, I don't mean, being a newsmaker in terms of, you know, a you know, politician or a, you know, sportsman or something that's, you know, hitting world records. But in terms of actually producing news, that is much less than it used to be. I mean, look at up, we're based, what are we doing? We're making a radio program. <laughs> and you know, the you know, we've got a couple of hundred dollars worth of microphones and, you know, webcams and an application. I mean, it's, this is the sort of thing that would have required a studio and yeah. thousands and thousands of dollars of gear, and, and we're doing it very cheaply. And uh, that's that, that's revolutionised the news business as well. But all in all, it's um, it is a very it's a very rough time. And I think that if I could just conclude this this uh, soliloquy for <laughs> on, <laughs> on one important point. Here is the problem. This is the fundamental problem we face in a democracy. We used to have curated media so that if you wanted to get your views across, you had to get past an editor or a director or a producer. You had media that tried to reach as broad an audience as possible, not because they were necessarily broad-minded, but because they wanted to get the maximum audience to justify higher advertising rates. Um, We've now moved into a world of narrow casting, and so people are now able to select, particularly on social media, the news and views that conforms with their opinions, prejudices, preconceived ideas. And that is actually dividing us. So we no longer, it's one thing to have different opinions, but we now, everyone can now choose their own facts, and that's very dangerous. So these are, you know, big problems that we face. Uh, for a democracy, I think, and you can see that spectacularly mm. in the United States, in particular. Mm. Do you have any comment about uh, what's happening over there in relation to filling the Supreme Court seat? Uh, well, I think that you know the, the the Republicans in the Senate are just being supremely hypocritical. But does that surprise you? I mean, <laughs> the, they, um, you know, the elections. You know, I don't know. It's, is it? five weeks away or something like that, six weeks away. Um, and, of course, the the um, appointment, you know, there's a powerful case for saying the appointment should be made by the uh, incoming president. That's exactly the point Mitch McConnell made in 2016. But, you know, ultimately um, uh, they will, um, you know, Trump will try and make a conservative uh, appoint, appointment 
as quickly as he can. Whether this helps the Democrats or the Republicans in the presidential election, I don't know. I think it, well, it why will don't we it'll fire up each side, I think. Right. Well, why don't we have that issue here in Australia in terms of... Well, because we don't, have se- we don't have senatorial confirmation of judges. Um, so, you know, our judges are appointed by the government um, and by the Governor-General, the federal judges, and the state, gov- state judges are appointed by the, you know, state governor, you know, on the advice of the premier, et cetera. Um, so it's an executive appointment. But we don't have, our judiciary is not nearly as political. See, the, I mean, Leon, as, as you know, as a lawyer, the US Constitution has a Bill of Rights in it, which obviously, you know, a lot of lawyers like. They like, you know, having, you know, these generally worded guarantees of human rights. I have always been quite sceptical of them. And the reason for that is that if you have a generally guaranteed um, statement of human rights, it then begs the question as to what it means. And you are, in large, to a large extent, conferring legislative authority to the judiciary who are not elected. And you, there, you then you know, start to more and more politicise the judiciary. Um, but on the other hand, if the, you know, it, you'd have to say there have been some elements of uh, social progress in the United States that may not have occurred without the Supreme Court. Um, the, um, uh, but, you know, if you t- will take the issue of um, same-sex marriage, which, you know, legalising that was a big achievement of my government, um, I much prefer the way we did it. You know, we had a we actually had a national vote. We had it was passed by the parliament. That was a better way of doing it, I think, than what happened in the United States with the decision by a court. Because there's always going to be people saying this is not legitimate. What are these judges? What right do they have? You know, whereas we can say with the marriage equality issue in Australia, we can say, look, this was passed by the parliament overwhelmingly, and before that. 63% of Australians voted yes. So, you know, I'm sorry if you don't agree with it. I'm sorry you're disappointed, but due process has been followed and, and, it's, and it's unarguable. So no one would ever, uh, in no one in their right mind, would ever suggest it be rolled back. But, you know, people do argue for that in the US. So, so there's, uh, it's a, that's, the, that is the, that's one of those big issues about... Um, generally, you know, as I say, generally worded guarantees of human rights. They sound great and everyone can agree with them, but it's in their, if their application is going to be uh, determined by a court, that court immediately becomes very political. And, um, of course, it's not, you know, they're not elected. They're not democratically accountable in any uh, normal sense. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we'll, uh, we, we thank you for your time. We just well, before you, we let you go, we just have one last question for you. Yes, and, and this is something you know to, to fulfil our curiosity. What does a prime minister do after being prime minister? Well, I mean, I, I can only tell you what I do. <laughs> <coughs> what other prime ministers do is ex prime ministers do is a matter for them, and and you know, and I guess it differs from you know different people. We've got different interests and so forth. 
Um, well, what do I do? I, um, you know, I do some writing and speaking. Um, obviously, I spent a fair bit of time writing my book. Um, I enjoy, you know, talking to the media on public issues, enjoy talking to, you know, you guys today, for example. But in terms of uh, my work work, I'm mostly spending my time uh, investing in uh, venture capital, um, you know, technology, new companies, the sort of thing I used to do before I was in politics. It's, I'm a great believer in Australian innovation and technology and so I'm, you know, continue to do that. I guess since I've been out of Parliament, I've made it would be close to close to a dozen investments in early stage companies, almost all of them Australian. Um, and they range from, you know, um, uh, you know, um, assured navigation technologies to cyber security to artificial intelligence to um, you know, um, various sort of software as a service type uh, uh, products. Um, it's you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a quite a big range of businesses, and that's you know that's my interest. So that's what I like doing. I'm a serial investor slash entrepreneur. And how does the average punter out there um, do do something like that without obviously your intelligence and your your experience and, and things like that? Well, I, I mean, what? How does an average? average how yeah, does yeah. an average person? You know, like a. Well, I mean, there are venture capital funds people can uh, invest in. I mean, I don't. I don't run a fund. I'm, you know, the money we invest is 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 mine and Lucy's. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there are there are managed funds that that invest in um, venture capital. But look, it's a. It, you know, it's. Leon, honestly, it's a, um, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, innovation. Um, these are absolutely fundamental to our economic future. So, you know, I'm very strong in, in you know, in very strong um, encourager of uh, that. Both I was used to do that before I was in politics. I did it when I was in politics and I still do it. But, you, you know, you... As I say in the classics, you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you meet your prince. <laughs> so not yes. everything you invest in will be a success. And, you know, sometimes really great ideas don't succeed. So, uh, but that's the whole, you know, that's what's exciting about innovation and, and entrepreneurship. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's exhilarating. Well, we'll let you get back to, to that. Uh, I just okay. want to thank you very well, much for your time. You. Okay. You too. Thanks a lot. Thank See you. you. Bye, gentlemen. Thank right. you. See you, Malcolm. That was former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. Right. We just finished that uh, interview. Uh, how do you think it went, mate? Mate, I thought it went uh, better than was planned, I think. Um, we got all the questions out. We got some really in-depth answers there. We got some a couple of sub questions in there, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a really great conversation with lots of stuff that gave us some insight into the NT. Um, uh, you know, for me, the hot topic that is constantly talked about is this debt thing and 
what interest have the Feds got in in territory politics? And look, we had um, a, a leading economist on not that long ago who said they've really got no interest. And well, if if the the last Prime Minister who would be as in touch with it as anybody um, says they're not interested, then clearly they're not interested. It's it's up to the territory to sort out its own issues. Okay. Well, that. Uh... That was interesting, and I, I'm, thank you for uh, you know asking that follow up question too about um, about whether they would step in or not because that wasn't in my list of questions. Oh, no worries. <laughs> you know what? That, that made me think. It made me think that uh, if Michael Garner was listening to this podcast, yeah, um, it'd be like UP. We can keep borrowing. I, I agree. Uh, I I actually tend to think that's probably already the thought process because um, they would know more than we do. Yep. So you know they they would know what the federal appetite is for for uh, any any sort of financial intervention in the Northern Territory, and you know if you can get from one point seven to eight point two in the blink of an eye, well clearly it's it's not that high to to be involved. Yeah, but no, I thought it went well. I thought he's a he's a he's an intelligent guy. Uh, I um I was impressed by the fact that um. He was very, very aware of his position, as mm. in, I'm not going to tell you guys how to run the territory. You know it better than I do. Yes. Um, and, you know, we're, as far as he's concerned, we're just two citizens. And yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a good place to be, if, you know, to, to not just jump into the, the high horse. Oh, look, there's just a, a level of political astuteness that was... Um, in the stratosphere compared to what we're used to, I think, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, just even the, the way he talked about Michael Gunner was very deferential and, you know. Yeah. Um, well, if anything, he, um, he he attacked the former government on his own side of politics first. Yes. You know, that was his default <laughs> position was, well, hang on, do you remember the last government? <laughs> uh, and then followed up with his own government, you know. Yeah, yeah uh, which uh, I thought, hats off to you for that because, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people um, who've had success in life and people who've had success uh, are often in this default position of I know better because I've done X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, but if you have done well in life but you can sort of automatically have empathy, I think the word is, yes. then you're so much better off because oh. you can, you know, you can come at it from, I suppose, the right position on any subject. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, you know, I've been reflecting on, on him, you know, obviously, uh, as I've been reading through the book and, and you know, listening to all these other podcasts um, with him on it. And I've come to this view. Mm. Malcolm Turnbull, and I don't know whether you'll get this or not because you know, I don't think you're a Trekkie from memory. <laughs> but, but, but Malcolm Turnbull is most like Mr Spock, Mm. For data, okay, right, yeah. Uh, Mr. Spock for the uh, for the for the old Trekkies and data for the for the new newer ones. Although mm-hmm. even that's about thirty odd years old now. <laughs> um, and I say that because he's just so incredibly rational. Uh, like everything is just yeah. There's, there's there's no no emotion in it. It's sort of like think 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 think. Yeah, is the answer, or yep. that's why this is an issue and it's going to be difficult to resolve yeah. these. But you I, know? I think 
I mean, for me, that tends to point directly to his business background. And you would know this having run a business and, you know, having run small businesses myself, I know it. People will often say of me that I'm pretty cool in a crisis and I just tend to look at things from a facts point of view first and that is, okay, well, hang on, tell me that again. What's the problem? Okay, and regardless of whether it's my own child or whether it's someone I've never met before in my life, I like to assess all the information before I then say, okay, well, here's how we deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's no different for him. It's no different for you. If you're in that environment, you can't just jump at any shadow because someone says X. You've, you've got to make sure that you cover all bases before you, you, you come up with a decision or, or a way of uh, approaching something. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of made, making me think now back to the uh, the politicians' debate between Leah Finocchia and Michael Gunner and Terry Mills on um, on um, that uh, um, Katie Wolf program. Yeah, and even though Terry got completely uh, chucked out as far as the election was concerned, mm. he was the one that appeared to come across the best. Right. Right, just in terms of being rational and thinking things through, and you know, yeah. making sort of considered statements. Yeah, and I just wonder whether you know both Michael Gunner and Leah Finocchiaro could could take a leaf out of yeah out of uh, not Terry Mills' book necessarily, but you know Malcolm Turnbull's book in terms of how you how you approach the electorate, you know, mm. how you approach these sort of questions. I don't know. I'm just yeah, I'm yeah. literally thinking out loud. Here. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the only thing that I mean with with any type of interview, and like I said before, you know, I've I've interviewed all sorts of different people in different spheres, and you generally walk away and think to yourself, "Oh, I wish I'd asked this, or I wish I'd asked that." I don't get that sense with this interview. But the one thing that I wanted to say that I didn't, because obviously he's got things to do and he's pretty quick to move on, is I just wanted to say to him that I'm sure he's been interviewed by the best journalists in Australia and all sorts of people, but no one's ever done more research than you for that. Oh, so. <laughs> I don't think so, mate. Good job, I mate. Think, good job. Think, and uh, and not only know. that, good job on getting him because that was one feat in itself. So well done you for sticking at it. Uh, thanks, mate. Yeah, no, that does feel like a little bit of, a, of an achievement. But uh, honestly, you know, if I was to be honest with you uh, and the audience, I, I was at least for the first 15 minutes, I was starstruck, mate. <laughs> 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 mate, never had that problem before, I've got to tell you. Never had that problem before. Oh, well. Um, but um, I could tell he wasn't particularly happy. Uh, and you can, you can weigh in on this, mate, mm. about the question about the youth detention and the... Yeah. Uh, uh, he certainly seemed to just sort of swat that away like a fly. Uh, yeah, I, I thought he probably wasn't um, overly happy with a number of the sort of details that you mentioned within it. I, I thought, again, once he'd had a little bit of time to consider and gather himself, I, I thought his answer was actually quite well considered. And at the end of the day, you're, you are correct. You know, what you said was correct from a territorial point of view. Mm. But then I, I kind of actually liked his answer from, well, I don't live there. I don't, I'm not telling you how to suck eggs for, for lack of a better term. But 
here's the things that we could see from the outside point of view. Mm. Here's what I thought about as a prime minister. And, and actually, I, I felt it was worthwhile for those reasons. And you can't sort of disagree with that because uh, at the end of the day, I think his heart was in the right place. Mm. Um, you know, the outcome and uh, what's transpired since then probably could never have been predicted ahead of time anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I felt a bit bad actually because I felt it made us potentially come across as rednecks, which is certainly not the intention mm. because, you know, I, I feel the pain of the people out there, with, you know, that have been victims of crime over the last little while. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's no question that crime has increased. I mean, look at Alice Springs. They had to cancel the uh, uh, Hachima Festival or, you know, move it out and even... Yeah. You know, the Independent came out yesterday and said uh, Michael Gunn had, had admitted that it had to be moved. And it's, it's because of crime. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You, you know, is this, it was, it's, it's difficult. It's such an you know, emotionally contentious issue because, mm. yeah, of course, nobody thinks children should be locked up. No. But, you know, um, guys like Dylan Voller, I mean, since those... Yeah you know, since that program was aired, have gone on to not bigger and better things by any stretch, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think the tough thing that a lot of Territorians struggle with, and I think you're absolutely right, we, we all know people in the Territory who've been touched by this one way or another, whether it's a break-in, whether it's a stolen car, whether it's a business having its front window smashed. Everybody knows someone or has experienced themselves some sort of, crime that has is as a result of this youth crime situation and uh, you know i mean you can only imagine as a parent would you want your kids locked up and and treated the way some of those kids were treated as as we saw on video absolutely not not you know you, you don't even have to think for a second about that but the reality is that a lot of those kids were serial offenders they were in the situations they were in for not having just done one or two things wrong. And, you know, I don't know that that uh, young fellow that, that you mentioned before personally, but I actually do know people who've come in contact with him. And in some of those cases, they were responsible for looking after him and, and fellow inmates. And some of the stories that I've heard are just despicable in terms of how those people treated the guards and the staff and, you know, that... Uh, look, I, I understand it's a tough issue and it's a, it seems like it's an endless cycle. But, you know, I'm a big believer in there's two sides to every argument. And, you know, I don't think, well, there shouldn't be anyway. I don't think there'd be people in the youth justice system who got into that system just for kicks to inflict pain and punishment onto to young offenders. So I, I think we need to look at, you know, at every angle. Hmm. The other issue that, that came up too, which I mean, I must admit is again quite contentious, is the issue of um, government funding of, 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 of traditional, you know, um, mm. um, what, what am I trying to say here? Um, um, I've lost the word for it. Is it now. about the, the town camps? Uh, not just the town camps, but just the um, the communities, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, the various communities are around uh, the territory, yeah. and how money is getting put into those communities or 
is or isn't being put into those yeah, communities yeah, and, and yeah. What, uh, what's the long-term goal of that. And what became very apparent to me was, hey, you know, we've, we've um, as a country, we have done so much damage to uh, the Indigenous yeah. population over the last 200 years. Yeah. Um, they should be entitled to live wherever they want to live and, and are entitled to the services that, that any other uh, city or, or town gets. Mate, I've asked you this question before and I, I, I'm not intending to throw you under the bus here, but I, I, I've always got the impression that you feel if that money is going to be spent on uh, the Indigenous communities, then there has to be some sort of future outcome planned for that, whether it's a, uh, an industry or, you know, some sort of self-sufficiency. But the answer that he gave was completely at odds with that. It was like, well, we should spend the money and they should live however they want to live because we essentially buggered up their life when, when Europeans first came to Australia. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, and, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my views are, are probably more similar to the views of um, uh, the principal of Halebury School, uh, Craig Glass. And yep. I think this podcast may very well come up before that one at the moment. <laughs> um, but it's about outcomes. Yeah. It's, you know, we want to educate Aboriginal children so that they have more opportunity in life. I mean, it goes back yeah. to my own life, mate. Yeah, you know, yeah, when I go back yeah. two or three generations ago, yeah. and yes, I know I'm talking about generations here, yeah. where my forefathers said, hey, uh, you know, if you want to be, well, they were told, if you want to be educated, you've got to, uh, well, you've got to become a Christian because the missionaries yeah. were there, yeah. and that's how you got educated. And they saw that as a, as a route out of poverty. Yeah. Now, does that apply here? I, I don't know. But that's what we're doing. We're offering education. We're getting in there trying to get better health outcomes, better living outcomes, but we're doing it in the context of, you know, customs and, and, and traditions that are millennia old. Yeah. To play devil's advocate, though, um, and someone we spoke to recently also said to me, well, you have to differentiate between the Indigenous Australians who are leading uh, what we would term a traditional life versus those who are leading more of an urban life. And, yeah, the urban life doesn't necessarily have to be in Palmerston or Darwin, but it, it can just be that sort of structure. I, I can't imagine any community would not want better health outcomes because, you know, why would you? But maybe our education is, is of little interest or little importance to those leading a traditional life. Which is uh, very, very consistent with the comments that were made by um, the former member for Stuart. What was his name? Uh, Scott McConnell. Scott McConnell. Yeah. Very, and yeah. indeed uh, your favourite, uh, Kendall Trudgeon. Yeah, yeah. So I've, sort of, I've become more aware of that thanks to talking to them, but just looking at the situation. Um, you know, we... And, you know, in... in Craig Glass's favour, if, if people want that education, well, it's, it's there in abundance. But just because we think they should have it, it doesn't mean it's, it's going to resonate at all. Well, in that case, my view is if, if that's going to be the, 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 the social compact that mm. the country makes with its first inhabitants, 
right? All the first Australians. Yeah. Then the rest of us need to be educated. Yeah. And our expectations ought to be managed in relation to that. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Right? So we ought to be told, look, we are going to continue spending money propping up these um, communities because they're entitled to live where they want to live. Mm. Um, We have done enough damage and destruction to their culture over the last 200 years and this is how we're going to deal with it going forward. Don't expect anything... um, uh, don't don't expect any kind of contribution to the economy, uh, or don't expect any kind of uh, KPIs to be put in there against those communities, yeah. because that's just the way it's going to be. You, yeah. you know, to to yeah. me, that would be a better way of 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 having the conversation than giving us expectations that you know, like, why are we spending all this money when we don't actually get anything, any yeah. outcome from it. Yeah, I think one of the other problems is that, um, you know, in in Darwin and Alice Springs and in Dubbo and in, you know, parts of South Australia and a lot of Western Australia, and you, you've, you've got a situation where you've got Indigenous people living what we would call, um, you know, uh, I suppose a, a normal lifestyle. Uh, I don't use that word in terms of everybody should or has to live it but you know they've they've got a house or a property and they have regular jobs and etc cetera, etc cetera. um but again that that's just become that's because that's how it's done in those cities and so we've got this situation where we see uh, indigenous australians involved in that normal lifestyle and we just assume that well they should all be involved in that. But, again, that's not our decision to make on their behalf. And I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I think the way it's been discussed previously has has given everybody the wrong expectations and it's mm. just a matter of realigning that. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was interesting. And then uh, what did we end up uh, getting to after that? We spoke about the budget, um, which he didn't want to touch with a 40-foot budget <laughs> No, look, I thought for me the media stuff was, was really interesting because he's very switched on. I'd completely forgotten he was involved with Aussie Mail. Um, he, he, you know, he's – and me working in the digital space and, um, you know, in, in many cases where we do repurpose content, uh, as it's known, um, it's such an interesting space and having been in the commercial radio business for, for many, many years prior to what I do now, um, the traditional media is struggling. So all of this stuff about, oh, we're going to make Google and Facebook pay, it, it, they're, they're chasing the, you know, they're, they're chasing the lost dollars. And he himself talked about the, the Fairfax newspapers and I've talked to you about this um, you know, multiple times, but they were referred to as the rivers of gold, the yes. Saturday morning newspaper where people used to flip through and look for cars and look for jobs and look for, you know, yard sales and everything else. They were called the rivers of gold. And, you know, let's not forget that the, the, the boys at Seek approached Fairfax, as it were, in the day and said, look, we want you to invest in this new concept where people are going to find jobs online. And, of course, they were laughed out of the room. I think they were only looking for a million dollars or something at the time, which sounds like a lot of money to the individual, but to a, a corporation like Fairfax was a drop in the ocean. And they were laughed out of the room because it's like, well, 
No one's going to look for jobs online. You're kidding yourselves. Well, today, Seek's a multi-billion dollar company and Fairfax has been repurposed about four times trying to keep it above water. So the traditional media has really, really struggled since the internet age to extract advertising dollars because people have found far quicker, more convenient, cheaper and easier ways of, of advertising whatever it is they're looking to advertise. Um, you know, you and I can do it with, with basic Facebook ads or, or Google ads uh, at a fraction of the cost of, of what the traditional media would try and charge you. Hmm. Yeah, well, um, I think uh, if this uh, podcast gets um, air, uh, airtime above and beyond these, these uh, uh, the, the four walls of the territory, it'll yep. be over that issue. And uh, yep. there'll be plenty of people listening because I, I have not heard of a single podcast where he has discussed those yeah. issues and the detail he had on this one. Mm. Well, let's hope so. But uh, obviously we do this for Territorians and um, I, I thought there's some really good local issues that we talked about with him and, and, and hopefully, um, you know, our listeners got something out of it. Yes. All right, mate. Well, thanks very much for that. And um, I guess we'll catch you on the next episode of the Territory Story podcast. We will indeed. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.